Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Matt, great to be able to catch up with you uh, and get your views from a top-down perspective um, and for our viewers to know and understand that uh, you're a value money manager. Um, value has certainly been more in favor as of late, the cyclical companies, uh, as well as you know, strong bottom-up fundamentals. But talk to us perhaps just from the macro perspective right now in terms of your expectations on inflation and, and where interest rates go, because that does determine the valuations of stocks across the board. That's right. Um, so just looking back six or 12 months, people say, well, value has done better than growth. But I think those terms are a little misleading. I would use cyclical versus stable. So when we went into COVID, there were a lot of stable companies that were completely unaffected by a shutdown, say Procter & Gamble or Microsoft. But cyclical companies, uh, their businesses shut down or were highly affected. And as we've come out, the cyclical companies have recovered toward or back to normal. And those companies just naturally populate in the value index. Uh, the indices have recently rebalanced. And so we may see some of those now are showing up on the growth side. Some more stable companies are showing up on the value side. So as long as GDP keeps growing, you, you've got to kind of favor the cyclical companies. You know, I, value has the wind at its back right now. But that won't last forever. Um, if second quarter GDP is 10%, you know, that, that's unsustainable. We're gonna go back to three. Um, on the inflation side, that also helps typical cyclicals because they are able to have pricing power. Um, say demand for plastic or steel or copper or beverage cans or such, they don't really have a lot of pricing power and a lot of growth naturally. They need the economy to be growing to provide the growth, and they need a, a cover to raise prices when they have inflation. So uh, price, price increases typically lag a little bit, the raw materials coming in, but they'll catch up over time. Uh, and they'll also lag on the way down when raw materials start to ease off. So uh, mm -hmm. there are a couple of good tailwinds for cyclicals right now. And so... To pick up on, on the point in terms of pricing power and some of the, some of the inflation that consumers are feeling, um, what specific areas are you seeing it in? I mean, we hear it from a headline perspective, but what are you seeing as you actually analyze these companies and will it be transitory? And if so, for how long? So I, I think a lot is transitory, but certainly not all. When you looked at the last inflation reading we had, which was 5%, nearly half of that came from used car prices. And you say, well, you know, how did that happen? Well, when COVID shut the economy down, we didn't build any new cars, but people still needed to buy a car. You had a child go off to college, your car broke down or you wrecked it. You know, there was, demand was there. Um, so inventory of that, of certain products like cars is very low. Uh, drive around your city and, and look at the car lots. You'll see that they're about a quarter full of what you, what you should be used to. So the prices are going up. 
but that will be rectified. All the automakers are back to 100% production and you know they'll catch up over time. Um, that backs up the chain. And when you look back at, at things like copper or steel, which you know go into these products, those also went up as that production fell and now is coming back to meet needs. So, uh, you know, it may take a while. It may take as much as two years. I'd, I'd say at least a year for even autos to get back somewhere close to normal. Um, but eventually half of that inflation will go away. The other half of the inflation, 2%, is just kind of the Fed's target is a little more common and 2% inflation is not really a bad thing. Uh, the one way that we would get permanent higher inflation is wage inflation. And we haven't seen it yet, um, but that's something to keep an eye out for and you know look at every six months or so. We still have some slack in employment, so it doesn't appear like wage inflation is imminent, but that's, that's something that can be a more structural long-term inflationary force. Can you walk us through that a little bit in, in terms of what that, how that would translate into inflation being higher for longer? When employment or you know, the, the pool of unemployed candidates gets very tight because the economy is very strong, then employers have to compete to hire the best employees right, and, and, get, and, and just reach their staffing levels. So we're not actually at that today, but as, as employment continues to improve, you can get to a stage where you say, look, I need this many employees and they're leaving for other jobs. And the way I retain them is to raise their wages so they stay at my business. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be something that, and then all the other businesses raise their wages to try to attract those people back. And, and that can be uh, kind of a self-fulfilling and sustaining process. When you think about commodities, you would say, okay, you know, oil is doubled in price, but you can just go drill more oil wells or the people that are using oil will try to use less and that, that can solve that problem. But if there aren't employees, you can't solve that really with any other approach than trying to offer a higher wage. And how are you perhaps playing or investing in some of these tailwinds and, and specifically in what areas? So um, naturally, as a value guy, I, I do play more in cyclicals maybe than other approaches to investing. And last summer, of course, or last March, when the market went down so much, um, there were some of these names that were unbelievable values. Um, we have names in the materials and the industrial sectors. Uh, we're overweight consumer discretionary. We're a little bit underweight at the time. Some of the more stable areas, say a healthcare or a consumer staple. Um, that, I think the, the best time to get into those stocks is probably past. Uh, we're not active sellers necessarily yet. Maybe to use, to use the analogy, we could be in the sixth or seventh inning and you never really know how long the game's going to last. But, uh, you know, you can just find companies that benefit from greater economic activity and let that wave carry you. Mm -hmm. Well, what about um, the chemical business or, or plastics companies? I, I feel like in the past, you always had some exposure there. Um, do you now, and is that still an attractive area? Or are their input costs too high with oil? No, most of the US plastics names are natural gas focused. So 
uh, and natural gas is still cheaper to make ethylene and polyethylene out of than if you use naphtha, which comes from an oil derivative, um, which is much more common around the rest of the world. Um, so they do have a pricing edge over plastics produced outside the US. But those stocks are, are not particularly good values to me right now. I wouldn't particularly say they're overpriced, but they've recovered. And we're talking about the Dow and the Lyondell or Westlakes of the world. They've recovered. Um, currently, I'm looking at names like BHP, which is the Australian miner. They're about a third copper, a third iron ore, and a third oil. Also, we have a packaging company called Graphic Packaging. As the consumer spending picks up, you go to the grocery store and things that are, that are packaged in uh, plastic or cardboard, primarily cardboard for them, um, you know, they're, they're just selling more. So uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, there's your thesis on that one. <laughs> and Matt, just back to um, the, the topic of um, inflation and interest rates, um, it, it seems as though the, the market believes that, believes the Fed and believes that inflation will be transitory, that the Fed will have a handle on inflation, will not have to raise rates too fast. I mean, I think the fixed income market's telling us that. Um, what do you believe? I, again, I do believe part of the inflation is transitory. Um, the fear, I guess, is that the fear that the Fed gets behind the curve and has to raise rates hard and fast in order to stave off inflation. And it's, uh, it, it's a little humorous sometimes uh, to look at when we have a meeting and, you know, their dot plots change or uh, Powell says something a little different. The next day, the market will go down or, or up because and then two days later, we've forgotten all about it. Um, it's a very difficult job the Fed has. Uh, I believe at first they'll begin to taper the quantitative easing. They're buying $120 billion dollars of bonds uh, a month and they'll taper that down to zero, but then they'll keep their balance sheet flat and eventually they will have to raise rates. I would guess that the 10 year has a small upward bias why this all happens. And then when they raise rates, the 10 year should stop and go back down as they continue to raise Fed funds because the bond market will say, well, that will slow the economy and slow inflation. So longer term bonds should yield less. Uh, that's a very typical cycle, right? We've been through it many times historically. I, I don't really see anything to change the trajectory of that this time. Okay, but there, you know, the, the fear is though that they get behind the curve and have to raise rates faster um, and more swiftly. But if they do that, will that be transitory and the market settles out? I mean, it must. It must. If 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 you're thinking in the market, saying that any kind of inflation is mostly transitory. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the market, everything in the long run is transitory. But uh, you can go back from 1964 to 1980. We had rising inflation the whole time, and the Fed kind of refused to raise rates, and just they were always behind. And it wasn't until Volcker came in in the early 80s, and he took I. I've, I may get this number wrong, but I think Fed funds were 14%. He raised, you know, he had to crush it. And then you have a recession when that uh -huh. happens. Um, so if they do get behind and we start seeing monthly figures that are still 3% inflation or more, a uh, couple of those might make them a little nervous. And then there'll be a 50 basis point Fed increase instead of a 25 or, or an increase every time. 
And then it's easy to overshoot and mm-hmm. then you slow the economy too much. Uh, and then you and then you do run a high risk of causing a recession. And Matt, what does the U.S. economy look like and feel like to you? You know, we talk about this reopening trade, certain states ahead of others, you know, in terms of their uh, reopening. What does it feel like? What are you seeing? You know, in, in talking to company managements and just observing uh, just in my typical life or, or talking to people, it, it seems like we've, we're... 90% back to normal, maybe 95. I mean, I, at least here in Kansas City, it seems uh, completely, you know, as it was two years ago. Um, and you, you see, you're starting to get these kind of notations out. Everybody stockpiled toilet paper last March, and now toilet paper sales are down. People got enough. You know? <laughs> so it, it, it just takes a while to kind of you, you had a number of imbalances like that. We talked about autos, we talked about things like diapers and toilet paper, and those have to go back to normal, and they are. Um, but that's probably going to take another six months or so. You know, you've got semiconductor shortages. You've, you've just got the supply chains that got jarred from an exogenous event, and mm-hmm. we're still recovering. And um, when we think about fiscal policy and the impact that an infrastructure bill can have on the economy. How, how do you weigh that into your equation and your thinking? Yeah, no, that's a definite positive. The question is always the devil's in the details and you don't know the, the final number and you don't know the number of years that spending will be spread out. Um, I'm somewhat uh, a more cautious investor, and I'm loath to go ahead and buy companies I think will benefit from that uh, until I kind of have a better feeling of, of uh, fiscal spending. And that may mean that I may miss some of the stock moves, but um, I guess I'd rather be late and right than early and sorry. Right. Um, but taken together, it sounds as though your outlook is on the optimistic side. Yes, U.S. economy is doing fine. Now, we're not going to grow this fast. We need to slow back down to something normal, and normal is 2 or 3%. Interest rates are still low. Employment continues to increase. You know, the, again, headline inflation looks bad, but there's every reason to believe that will come back down. Um, now, the market, un- unfortunately or unfortunately, has kind of discounted a lot of that. I mean, we are up a lot from the lows of last March. We're up uh, 20, 20 some percent on the value index this year to date. Um, again, I don't think 20% returns every six months is normal. That should come back down to more of a historical level of, you know, high single digits or low double digits. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we're at record highs once again. So having said that, and, and, you know, investors should understand that you're very much bottoms up fundamental analysis. Um, but is it more and more difficult to find those opportunities? It has been. Um, the, the problem with me, I think, if this is a problem, is the COVID recession was so short. It was one of the steepest yet shortest. We were in and out of it in 45 days. So when the economy shut down, Capital One went from $100 to $40. But three weeks later, it was recovered to 80, and now it's 160 today. So you say to yourself, look, I believe it's a good company. People are going to use credit cards. Uh, Credit losses don't seem bad. They've got a lot of excess capital to buy back stock. 
but suddenly it, it it's not nearly as exciting to buy it at this price as it would have been 12 months ago. So it is definitely getting more of a challenge to sift through things. Normally when the cyclical come cyclical companies come back, the stable companies will be sold as a source of funds. So the opposite of Capital One is Kimberly Clark, two biggest products, again, diapers and toilet paper during COVID, that stock went straight up to an all-time high up around $145, give or take a few. Well, it's been a, a big underperformer ever since. Um, they're just not quite cheap enough yet for me to really jump up and down about, but I'm hoping that we will get a few, uh, you know, get a few staples that are down. Otherwise, it's it's really just a, a job of, of sifting through names here and there, finding a company that maybe has just a temporary issue, you know, mm -hmm. a one-off here and there and, and looking for good ideas. So let's talk about a few ideas. Um, and we briefly mentioned the semiconductor space. So NXPI, um, what, what's the story there? So NXPI makes microcontroller units, which typically have a processor, a little bit of memory and a communications device that can talk to other other pieces of computers within, you know, it's a Bluetooth or a, or a local Wi-Fi type of connection. They can also have sensors or actuators if they need to sense something or do something. About 55% of the company uh, goes into cell phones, comm equipment or industrial applications. And that's all well and good. And, and let's not dismiss that part. But 45% of the company is into autos and, and they make units that when you get to a level four all electric car, it should have at least five of these MCUs in it, probably one on every corner and a master controller in the middle of the car. Huh. That will take out half the copper wiring in the car, saving you a lot of weight, giving you better range for an electric car. And, and these are the units that will do all, all the things for you. They will sense, you know, the, they'll take the radar and the LIDAR and all the self-driving and talk back to the center console. Um, a typical car today has about $350 worth of semiconductor content. Uh, that should go to about $1,800. Um, it'll take five to 10 years, but NXPI has number one market share in auto MCUs, and I, I see them sustaining that. Hmm. And it, it's everything as simple as I, I want my car to turn on the windshield wipers to I'm backing up and the, the camera senses something and automatically you know, connects the brakes all these MCUs talk to each other and they're just getting more complex over time um, and they're getting more necessary if you really want to move to the car of the future. So, so it sounds as though it's, it's kind of the pure play in auto. Um, yeah. Yeah. It has some of the highest auto exposure. I, I don't know of any company that's a hundred percent auto, but if you think that 45% of their company could be five times larger in a decade um, and the stock's not expensive. It has a free cash flow yield of over 4%. In the semiconductor world, there's only two companies that I can find that have free cash flow yields that high. So, um, you know, it's a high quality company. It's never going to be dirt cheap, but uh, you have a, a great long-term growth area and you're not really paying for it. And what are the other areas though? I mean, if 40% is autos, what about the other areas and, and how much vulnerability could there be there in terms of cyclical swings? Because that's my biggest concern uh, when I look at semiconductors. Well, so, you know, when the 
both the cell phone parts that go on a cell phone, like RF communication or ID units, and um, they go into comm equipment, same kind of thing. Those can be lumpy. Um, if they, you know, if cell phone sales accelerate or decelerate, they will just go right along with it. It's it is absolutely cyclical, and and don't think that the auto business cannot be cyclical. I do believe it has a long term growth path, but sure. Um, the industrial side is probably one of the more cyclical sides where you're putting these controller units inside automated factories. And yeah, if the if GDP decides to, to go below zero and have a minus sign in front of it, those businesses are going to slow down as they will for every semiconductor. So you're absolutely right. You need to keep that in mind. There's no steady state when it comes to the semiconductor industry. I suppose so. The advantage with this name versus others is the valuation. What what is it trading at, and where where sh what's the range? I suppose historically. So I like to use free cash flow to enterprise value, and it's at about four point three percent, and that's actually uh, one of the more expensive ranges it's been in the past. A few years ago, Qualcomm tried to buy this company, and it fa fa failed. And the stock fell sharply after that. It, it was kind of out of favor. Um, and it's recently been coming back. But I would think a 3.5% free cash flow yield would get it more in line with other semiconductors that have similar growth rates, similar cyclicality. Um, and to me, that still provides over 30% upside to the current price. So hmm. I'm, I'm an owner. Okay. Um, what about McKesson is another one that you like with, with, within the healthcare space? That's right. So McKesson is a drug distributor. They buy drugs by the millions from the pharmaceutical companies and then package them up and ship them out to all the various pharmacies across the U.S. And uh, they have some businesses in Europe, although uh, there's some discussion they may exit those. Um, now, this is a company that I think long term is, a, is an excellent company. It, it does its job. You know, it, it's not, it, it's a logistics company is basically what it is. It's, it's not particularly sexy, um, but it generates nice cash flow. Management's generally very good with that, paying a dividend, buying back a lot of stock. Uh, the one-off part of this though, is the opioid uh, considerations. So, you know, there's a, a there, we had an opioid crisis in this country and it seems like every state is suing somebody. Uh, we just recently had a settlement in New York earlier. That was Johnson & Johnson just yesterday. Um, that's really not the stock down because people are afraid. It's an unknown. They're, they're almost certainly going to pay a fine. However, when I look at the free cash flow they generate and I say, okay, let's take all the estimates for the possible fine they might pay. Um, low end, high end, mid range, uh, even taking the worst case scenario, uh, I still get a stock that should go into the mid 250s. Um, I'm not sure where it's trading today, maybe 190 to 190. If you get a, a mid-range settlement, I mean, you just take 400 million of free cash flow every year for the next 10 or 18 years, and it's not yours anymore. You, you pay your fine. But I still think the stock is just tremendously oversold. Um, you know, people are afraid of the unknown. And this is a case where I'm willing at these prices to say, look, I can wait it out mm -hmm. and see what the ultimate conclusion is. Hmm. And so, Matt, it's, um, yeah, it's around 192 McKesson today. J&J &J is 163. 
Um, what do we need to be thinking about as it relates to these lawsuits surrounding uh, opioids? Yeah, the biggest thing is to just get them over. Wall Street hates uncertainty. If you knew today that, you know, here's the ultimate fine and here's McKesson's portion of it, everybody can just now rest easy and know it's know what it is and recalculate their value for McKesson. And, and the reason it's so cheap is because, and it's a legitimate fear is what if the answer comes out two or three X what, what the worst case scenario was? That is possible, but I think at today's price, you could maybe come out at double what the worst case is and you'd still have a company that was worth trading where it is now. Um, that would not be a good headline that day. So it's going to go down, yeah. but uh, it, it just seems like it's, you, know, you, you do need to build in a cushion, but you don't need to build in three cushions. So I'm, I'm willing to take the risk here. And what's the, what's the claim? What's the case here? Well, all the opioid manufacturers and the distributors needed to be tracking. I mean, this is a, you know, a highly addictive and, and serious drug that can cause serious side effects. And there's various claims that people become addicted and they either find doctors or pharmacists to fake scripts or they steal these things. And there's stories about a distributor you know, dropping off boxes and boxes at the back door of a warehouse that had that wasn't a pharmacy that had nothing to do with it. And I have no idea if those stories are true or not, but people with the addiction were getting the drugs mm. and prescription drugs like this need to be tracked by everyone in the system. You know, you, you can't have that sent mail order to your house. It can't sit on your front porch for a few hours because it needs to be controlled and tracked. And so the lawsuits are like, look, you, you couldn't possibly have been tracking these correctly. There's no way that, you know, a certain pharmacy in a rural town in a small state was going through, you know, 15,000 opiate pills a week. That, did, that makes no sense. So yeah. their, their tracking systems fell down and needed to be improved. And the things that don't smell right needed to be reported. And it looks like they just didn't do the job they should have been doing. Okay, got it. Um, another stock I think you like is Well Tower. That's right. This I is a, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> like you're unfamiliar. This is I a, am unfamiliar. <laughs> what is it? A, a healthcare REIT, and they own, or they can own, really any sort of building that uh, caters to the medical industry. Uh, and they are simply the owner of the building and they rent it out. They have a large portion of their business is senior housing, but they also own things like doctor's offices or a dentist office or, or maybe an acute care facility or, or various things. Um, senior housing to me, and I've owned this stock for a long time, it is something that has a permanent tailwind behind it. The population of America is aging. And as you get older and either you lose, you know, some of your physical ability to care for yourself or worse yet, you end up with an Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, these people need to be cared for. If, if you had a parent who has Alzheimer's, it's, it's almost impossible to care for them themselves. You know, mm -hmm. they, they care. So that's kind of a long-term tailwind. Now, when COVID hit, uh, most of their senior housing portfolio, the occupancy dropped uh, significantly. 
Um, they like to run above 90%, 90 to 95%. We were down in the 70s because who wanted to put your parents in a senior housing facility when uh, horrible disease is raging around? Uh -huh. um, but they did an excellent job, in my opinion. They had very few deaths in any, in any of their um, housing in the, the portfolio. And now that kind of COVID has passed, I think we're getting back to a more normal state where occupancy is now growing again and it's still low. Um, we, we hope it gets back to that 90 or uh, low 90s percent given another year or so as people are now comfortable again saying, okay, you know, I, I can uh, put a loved one into senior housing and not worry about this disease. So mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I believe it's kind of positioned in real estate in an area that will have increasing demand as far as I can see. And they definitely went through a pothole with the COVID problem, yeah. but uh, I think we put that in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I mean, the stock's certainly recovered off of the 52-week low, and, and it does have a dividend, uh, just maybe around 3% or so, or yield. Is That's right. Kind of as a REIT, it needs to pay out 90% of its funds from operations. Um, they did cut the dividend during COVID. I'm not 100% sure they needed to, but I think it was, you know, erring on the side of caution because we didn't know how things would come out. So, uh, they probably won't be in a hurry to raise it anytime soon, but ultimately as, as funds from operation grows, you have to also raise the dividend along with that. So uh, mm. in the universe, that might be a little below average dividend, but uh, we'll see some growth out of that in the years to come. And Matt, just um, staying on the dividend and REIT aspect, two questions, but um, are you interested or involved in any other REITs these days? Not currently. Uh, it, it, it's an area that I find a little odd. Um, you know, if you look at office REITs, most of them are back to the prices they were pre-COVID, but occupancy is still 50%. You know, I, I haven't gone back to the office. I guess we're still paying rent on it, but we, we, there's, there's people, there's companies, even companies I work for, that we're not all going back to the office full force the way we were before. There'll be an optional work from home or there'll be shared workspaces. You know, I, I, I think some of these names have just gotten ahead of themselves with the, oh, everything's back to normal. I'm not sure office is. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I, I don't find a lot of value uh, broadly across the REIT space. Okay. And, and when we think about, um, you know, as we start out the conversation in terms of you know, cyclicals having a bit of a tailwind here, but, you know, if inflation stays at bay, which is kind of lower for longer, how attractive are dividend stocks these days? I mean, is that a key focus area for you in terms of building out return for your portfolio? Uh, typically, that's a secondary consideration. If I have a stock that I believe is undervalued, that this, this company is trading below what it's worth, uh, and management only really has five things to do with their money. Two of them are grow the business, either acquire someone else or invest internally. Three of them are financial, pay a dividend, buy back stock or pay down your debt. If I think the stock's cheap, I'd rather see management emphasizing a, a share repurchase than a higher dividend yield. Um, so look, I love a dividend, but that, that would not be a primary consideration. Um, History and I guess common sense would tell you that as rates went up, dividend stocks should probably lag because bonds are now becoming more of a competition for you know, the dividend I'm getting off of stocks. 
However, that relationship doesn't always hold historically. It kind of comes and goes, and right now it's gone. Uh, recently, when rates have gone up, dividend stocks have rallied also, which huh. might, might be a little off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Utilities, which are historically you know, one of the biggest places to look for dividend yield, they typically underperform a rising 10-year interest rate for about six to nine months. Then they forget about it, and, and then they just catch up. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, again, I guess it's not a primary consideration, but uh, I don't think I'd be afraid of dividend investing, even if you did feel the 10-year would still had uh, a higher yield in front of it. Okay. Uh, I should ask you, you know, I was actually looking at some di- some utility stocks um, but about a month and a half ago. I don't have the names off the top of my head, but just some names that were actually highlighted as interesting opportunities. Are, are you involved in utilities these days? Yeah, I have two names there, um, Intergy and Evergy. Um, what, what are the tickers? ETR for Intergy. Evergy is EVRG, which is actually my local utility. I send them a bill, a, a check every month. Uh, they were formed between the merger of uh, Great Plains and um, oh, West, uh, gosh, I, it slips my mind, a few years ago uh, um, in, in uh, a Missouri and a Kansas utility has merged. Um, they were very cheap because they had no growth and they had kind of a contentious relationship with the various utility commissioners in those states. Uh, they recently got new management and they've come out with a growth plan. Um, and this will involve Kansas is an excellent state for wind power. This will involve wind power, solar power, a bigger move to renewables. They'll be shutting down some coal and you know Im- improving overall operations. Uh, really utilities, I think, are going to have some more growth in the future than we perceive historically hmm. because of the drive toward electric cars and to using really electricity as the preferred power source for anything that it can be applied to. Um, and, you know, maybe we take growth rates from 3% to 5 to 6%, okay? That's still a change. Um, yeah. And you'll grow your dividend at that rate and, you know, you'll grow earnings at that rate. So uh, it'll be interesting over the next five to 10 years to kind of see how utilities in general do. And it also brings up, and this is probably nothing to worry about today, do we have the infrastructure? If, If California wants to go to no fossil fuel cars being sold by 2030, do we have the wires and the transmission and the transformers and the generation of electricity to support that? And you've seen recently with the storms in Texas or with heat waves in California where the grid doesn't always stand up. So there'll be a lot of investment needed. So investing, utility companies making this, these big investments can be a good thing if in fact the, the regulators also understand that it's a good thing. And, and I was going to ask you a little bit about that in terms of whether or not you are more interested in regulated versus unregulated utilities, or you do a combination? I'm more interested in the regulated side. You grow rate base, you grow earnings. Uh, and but the point was, you correctly made, we all have to work together. The utilities have to work with the commissioners you know, to, to plan ahead and meet this. Um, if, the, if the commissioners say, we're not gonna allow you to earn a return on your investment, then it's not gonna be built 
And then the ultimate suffering is done by the consumer when you have blackouts or you, you don't have enough power at when times are needed. So yeah, it's, everyone's gonna have to work together, which I think should and will happen um, and will ultimately be a good thing. Okay, um, Matt, I think we're gonna wrap it up there, but bottom line for our investors, your, your perspective, you've been in the investment industry for many years now as a value money manager, and also of course an analyst prior to becoming a PM. Um, but when we think about the markets at record levels, people looking and searching for opportunities, for value, for yield. And, and I think one of the biggest questions is whether or not they should even stay in the market or step into the market. What, what do you say to all of those kind of questions that I think people are having right now? Um, there, there's two answers to that. And, and you know, it's, the answers can be different <laughs> for everybody. But number one is you have an asset allocation mix based on your particular point in life and what you're trying to invest for. Okay, if you're younger and you're saving for retirement, you stay in equities because that will pay you off over the next 20, 30 years. Um, however, some people don't like the volatility. If you can't sleep at night because your equities go up and down, then it, it's not worth wrecking your life for. You uh -huh. move more into fixed income. Everybody's got to kind of make those decisions on their own. But I would stay invested in equities. If, if your asset allocation says I should be this much, I, I wouldn't change. And you're comfortable with it. Now, the, the second answer is a little more nuanced for, for the investors that like to do their own thing. This is an old, horrible saying from 50 years ago, but it's, it's, it's lasted because it's real. It's not a stock market. It is a marketplace of individual stocks, okay? I can buy a stock that I believe has upside. And even if the index, the S&P or the Russell or the Dow goes down, if my company succeeds, it'll go up. I remember very clearly in 2000 when the tech bubble burst, 40% of the market was up over 10% in 0102 and 03, even though all the indices were declining. So it's not just about what do I own, but also uh, do I own stocks or bonds? It's also, am I being a conscientious, you know, investor in individual companies? Understood. Okay, Matt, that was great. Um, thank you for your perspective as always, and also some great ideas and in-depth uh, discussion about them. All right, thank you. I enjoyed okay. sharing. Thanks.